This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. The province has given Hamilton the go-ahead for the LRT project. This is this environmental assessment that was such a, a big sticking point for council a few months ago. Uh, they've given it a thumbs up, probably to the surprise of nobody. But does that mean that this thing is on the tracks now and it's a, it's a go and, the, and no further delays? Not so sure about that. Let's uh, bring Larry DeAnne, former Hamilton mayor, into the uh, conversation as he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Good morning, Larry. How are you doing today? I'm very well, Bill. Good morning. I mentioned on my commentary earlier this morning that uh, the one sure thing about politics is there's no such thing as a sure thing. Uh, this is this is a good thumbs up. We kind of knew this was happening anyway, but uh, there's still a lot of work to do here, isn't there? Well, there's lots of work. No, this is not a surprise that the province would clear the environmental assessment for the additional stops uh, that were uh, added uh, to the LRT project when they extended it to Eastgate. And, of course, as we know, the environmental assessment process is is a process that whenever you do a major infrastructure project, you have to sort of mind the implications of that, and uh, and so you have to submit how you're going to do it and so on. So it's a it's a an, a needed um, a, a needed clearance by the province that looks after the EA process, um, but it's not a surprise that they would have said yes to it. Well, and it could be complicated. I know it's not a rubber stamp by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, you probably still have the scars, Larry, of uh, when the federal government had to do an EA with the Red Hill project, and uh, that didn't go as well as some people in the city had wanted. No, uh, and that's because at the federal level there were all sorts of uh, there was all sorts of skullduggery and uh, and uh, abetted by the way by by some locals um, that made that project uh, even more complicated. Uh, however, um, it eventually was vindicated in the courts, and and that project went through. But that's right. That's exactly what can happen whenever you submit yourself to another level of government for approvals. That all sorts of things can. Uh, come into play that complicates the uh, situation, but it seems at least for these three additional stops from uh, the traffic circle to Eastgate that clearance has been given. Now that doesn't mean that um, that uh, you know there won't be any other complications going forward, uh, because this is simply a, um, a, 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 a an approval on what's on paper uh, and uh, what's been outlined in the process. But then when you get into property acquisition. And and actually building the thing, you get into all sorts of other issues as well. Just refresh my memory. There's there's a pending legal action, isn't there? Or there's a a, a, a protest at, at Queens Park. I mean, somebody has actually filed some papers to try to, to. And it's it's not about the environmental issue. There's actually some other issues that they have stated in that. So I'm not I'm not 100 uh, percent crystal clear on on all of that. Uh, but I do know that even with the CA process, according to the uh, to the reports. Uh, 25 um, objections were filed, which is part of the process. People can comment and and express their opinion before the minister makes a uh, declaration of yay or nay on a on a given process. And uh, and there were 25 folks who um, who obviously don't like the project uh, that that tabled their concerns. The minister overrode those. I would hope that uh, the minister would have uh, would have considered, or the ministry staff would have considered those uh, those issues that uh, people objected to, and uh, it was felt that uh, you could still go on and somehow mitigate whatever it is that people had uh, had said in their objections. However, um, this, this, is a, this is a polarizing pro- project. Uh, the council has made the decision to go ahead, and I think that many people, uh, myself included, would have supported that, did support that. Uh, but there's still some fairly avid opposition out there, uh, they're either waiting for an election season to begin, uh, which of course is on the horizon, 
uh, and uh, or waiting for the next information that council has to deal with, including the uh, the all important uh, agreement with Metrolinx uh, and the implications to costs, local costs, to the operating budget for this project. So you know we're by no means out of the woods, but but every day that goes by, more money is spent, and every day that goes by, uh, the project advances. And every day that goes by, the closer we get to actually breaking ground. Uh, and um, I think most people also agree that it's an unstoppable project at this point. Yeah, and I hate to use that phrase, though. I had that discussion with some folks in the newsroom here earlier this morning, Larry, and I said, uh, I'm not suggesting that something's going to happen, but I'm saying the possibility is always there. I mean, people in Toronto could tell you that uh, at one point, some I guess back in the 60s and even into the 70s, uh, there was supposed to be a Spadina Expressway that was supposed yeah. to go all the way down from the 401 down to the lakeshore. Uh, that got stopped at Lawrence Road because the government of the time simply said, you know what, we changed our minds. We're not going to do that. Yeah, and, and you know, the, the big elephant in the room, of course, uh, is the fact that there's going to be a provincial election. Yeah. Um, and and uh, at least if you believe the polls, uh, the current government uh, seems to be lagging behind in those polls are catching up a little bit, but still considerably behind uh, the Conservative Party. And the Conservative, uh, at least some of the members of that party, have uh, have spoken not uh, passionately in support of LRT. And so what does that mean if there is a change in government? Um, uh, you know, the, the, you, you could look at, 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 at that and be pessimistic about it and, and say that they're going to pull funding on the project or force Hamilton to um, to reconfirm itself in favor of the project, which opens it up to community debate again. So, yeah, there there's, you know, miles to go before we sleep on this project. Well, there is another local example, too. And then, of course, we were just talking about the expressway a few minutes ago. Of course, when the NDP government got elected in the early 1990s, uh, they pulled the funding for the Red Hill portion of that project. And, uh, boy, it, it cost a lot of money and a lot of years to get that thing back on track. Did it ever. And, uh, you know, to the political peril of that party and uh, and uh, many of the members, I think it was David Christopherson was the only surviving member of, uh, of uh, you know, the five or so NDP seats that were uh, in government at the time. And and uh, when the Liberals came in, in fact, uh, they reinstated that funding. When the, the provincial Liberals under McGinty came back, um, uh, they reinstated uh, that that funding, and and uh, the rest is history. So yes, uh, elections have consequences, and and those you elect uh, have their own platforms, and uh, you know they live up to that. I mean, look at what's happening in BC with the change in government there. And some of the pilot pipeline projects uh, that that had been confirmed by the previous government and the federal government, uh, but um, are now in danger because the new government there wasn't in favor and is not in favor of those infrastructure projects. So elections do have consequences. The problem, though, is Bill, is this that that um, you know if you come in at the very end, after millions of dollars um, have been spent and. I spoke to two different councillors this past week who told me two different numbers that have been spent so far. It was just casual conversation, uh, but it sounds as if, if I'm to believe those councillors uh, that between 70 and $160 million have been spent so far. And imagine another year from now how many more millions will be spent. If a government comes in at that time and cancels projects where money has uh, already been expended, 
it just infuriates the public even more. Yeah, but you see, you're being pragmatic now, and you know, Larry, you've been in the business long enough. There's no, there's, there's no room for pragmatism in politics. Come on. <laughs> it just doesn't happen. If people are going to make a decision based on their ideology, they're, they're going to do it no matter what. And, and you mentioned, I, I love the term you used a minute ago, election season. Because uh, we've been talking an awful lot about the implications of what might happen with the provincial election. There's a municipal election just a few minutes or a few months after that next year, and that could change the landscape. That could change the landscape, um, indeed. Uh, I I don't see yet um, a um, a strong um, anti LRT candidate emerging, even in in private discussions and scuttlebutt. Um, I don't see a strong person who's against the LRT. Forward. Well, not yet, but you know as well as I do that right now the support for LRT on council is about 14 councillors wide, but it's not very thick. No, it isn't very, uh, but but it, it, you're right. You're absolutely right about that. Uh, and, and again, uh, councillors are looking at uh, uh, the, uh, the agreement, the operating agreement that has to go before them and the implications that that will have uh, to taxes, and that might change minds uh, down the road as well. Uh, but at this point, I think the momentum in the pro camp, uh, both from the mayor, who's obviously a strong champion of this, um, is is fairly strong. And for someone to challenge that uh, at this stage, uh, it, it isn't apparent. But you never know. You're right. You never know. Well, therein lies the problem. I mean, because, you know, you see all the hand-wringing that went on and the consternation and the foot-dragging that went on about the council decision to uh, to finally move the LR, or the uh, LRT environmental assessment thing forward. Uh, of all the votes they're going to have to take on this, Larry, that was probably the easiest. Because uh, it was just, hey, send that off to the province and let them do the evaluation. Uh, now they're going to get into the rough stuff. And as you mentioned, that's money. And, and you know, how much is this going to cost? Where's the money going to come from? It's going to get a lot trickier now. It is, but and and you're right. That was the easiest in the sense that uh, that they really didn't have to make a decision other than to send the documentation off to the province for approval. However, it was a potential off ramp. If they hadn't done that, it, it certainly would have uh, put a a major major block uh, on on the project. Uh, but uh, the fact that they did do that and they did that in in overwhelming numbers, if I recall, means that more money is being spent. And so to come back later. And say, you know, we approve spending all that money, uh, but now we're going to stop it. I mean, there would have to be an overwhelming reason to do that. Otherwise, it wouldn't pass the political test. Is there a signpost or maybe a hole in the ground that's actually going to say, okay, it's over, it's done, you can't go back now? Well, I think we've passed that, actually. I I think think, uh, we're well beyond that uh, that, uh, moment. But if you speak to some of the councillors, some who have been expressing concerns and and raising legitimate issues, whether I agree with with their overall position or not, they've been raising legitimate issues around the expenditures of dollars and the implications of this project going forward. They will tell you that the the next um, ox uh, to, uh, to to gore is the um, is the operating agreement because that has real implications to local expenditures. Up until now, people supporting the projects have been able to say it correctly so, and I've been one of them. They've been able to say, look, um, the province is giving us a billion dollars. Are we going to turn our back on a billion dollars, a major infrastructure project like this? We just wouldn't be responsible to do that. But the moment you talk about the operating dollars um, and what that means to local taxpayers, it's a whole different discussion. And if that number comes out to be untenable, 
if it's going to raise taxes by 1, 2, 3 percent uh, overall on top of everything else that council has to do, it'll give people pause at the very least. One of the things I'm going to talk about at the uh, meeting next week, obviously this thing about the environmental assessment will come up on the agenda, but uh, Councillor Green's motion, of course, about having uh, HSR actually as the operators on this, and he's not the first one to bring this up, and, and I think most people in this city, you and myself included, would love to see the HSR involved in this, but I, I just don't see that it's going to happen. I, Metrolinx has already sent out uh, feelers right now, tenders, uh, and they've said to whoever wants to bid on this that you're going to operate the thing, too. Yeah, exactly, and and, and the, the danger there... That, that horse I mean, has left the barn, hasn't it? I think it has. They signed an agreement that uh, would have to be opened up to change its terms in order to allow uh, the single provider being HSR. And the moment you open up the agreement, it opens up the floodgates to uh, all of the opposition and all of uh, uh, that debate all over again, and I don't think uh, councillors who support the project really want to do that. I mean, that's being pushed um, a lot by by the uh, local H- HSR union, the ATU, um, and uh, obviously they're trying to protect jobs and they're trying to protect wages and they don't want to see a third party come in uh, and share in what they now uh, have a monopoly over. Um, and, and of course, uh, the, there are implications to that as well. And they're saying, you know, there's going to be farmed out, it's privatized. Well, no, the system is not privatized. But it, much like our garbage collection, which is half um, internal workers by, of, of the city and half um, contracted workers of the city, they all do the same job and, in fact, keep each other, keep each other honest in terms, of, in terms of efficiency and in terms of, of cost. And that's the model, I think, that, uh, that uh, Metrolix is going to look at in terms of seeking bids on the operating of the system. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that evolves. I don't see councillors uh, opening that up because, quite frankly, it, there's a danger in that. And now there are some councillors who may not be supportive of the project who would love to see it open up. In fact, I think Councillor Green's motion is being seconded by Councillor uh, by, by Councillor Skelly, uh, who has been fairly vocal and concerned about the project. I mean, that should tell you something, shouldn't it? That the guy who is so in favor of the project is being seconded in the motion by the person who seems to be not in favor of the project because that part of the equation seems to see an opening if this agreement is opened up to then challenge and question the whole agreement and the whole project. So I think council would be well advised to thank the councillor, Councillor Green in this case, uh, for his motion, but pass on it. i got about a minute left here. i got to ask you, the, the best the thing about politics, of course, is that you can speculate about things. Uh, you mentioned that there is no strong anti-LRT mayoral candidate on the horizon that we know of, anyway. That we know of, yeah, yeah. Is that is this going to be such a polarizing figure that one will actually surface before the, the next municipal election? I, I sort of don't think so, because... Um, um, it, 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 it's not um, an issue. It, it seems like an issue that most people will say, well, that's settled. But why are we relitigating that? It's not like the Red Hill was that, that hadn't been settled when, when I ran and won the mayoralty. It's not like the stadium issue, which was very contentious um, and, and it cr- created problems for the incumbent mayor uh, at the time, uh, Mayor Fred. Um, in this case, it's an issue that's been settled, and so for someone to revive it and and whip up um, the divisiveness that uh, and 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 use it as a wedge issue, 
there would have to be greater angst than exists right now. Most Hamiltonians at this point uh, are, know that the project is going forward and aren't really paying attention to the inside baseball stuff that's happening even around the EA. Um, and so the fury would have to be somehow whipped up again uh, for it to become an election issue. And taxes may do it. Who knows? But I sort of don't think so. And, of course, as always, you reserve the right to change your mind if somebody does come up. We'll talk about that at the time, though. <laughs> Larry, thanks, as always. Great to get your All perspective. Right. Take care. You, Former Hamilton Mayor Larry Diani. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Well, the numbers are out. Uh, the housing market here in the Hamilton area continued to cool last month, uh, moving back toward what they call a more balanced market. Lou Piriano is the president of the Real Estate Association of Hamilton Burlington. Joining us on the Bill Keller Show to give us uh, some assessment as to what's going on. How are you doing this morning, Lou? Fantastic. Thank you very much for having us on. Well, good to have you with us because it's always insightful to get some uh, some perspective on what's going on here. The numbers are down. There are 1,125 residential properties sold last month, uh, but that's less than what we had uh, before. What's going on now? Well, what's going on, as you pointed out, is a balanced market. Um, you know, when we think when we say things are down. It's uh, it's from record levels, so you know you're still way up there. Uh, to give you an idea of, uh, we we sometimes calculate things on, based on inventory in the market and the number of months it would take to sell every property that's listed right now, uh, and and that that is between uh, 2.4 and 2.7, depending on whether you're using uh, months that is to sell everything, depending on whether you're using seasonally adjusted or not. And to give you a comparison. The uh, Calgary market, which they say is making a comeback, uh, is 4.6 months. Let's talk about that comparator because, I mean, I'm hearing all sorts of stories. Some folks in the industry, uh, some economists that are looking at this right now. We had Ian Lee on from the uh, Sprott School of Business up at Carleton University the other day that said that uh, that even this sort of cooling off is a bit of an aberration because he says one of the main problems that the government hasn't addressed uh, is supply. In other words, they're not building enough houses. People are moving into areas like Hamilton and Burlington, and at some point they're going to decide, look, I still have to buy a house. I guess we're going to have to make the jump. And he thinks he thinks it's going to start going up again. What say yeah. you? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, and I think he's providing some valuable insight there. Uh, Vancouver did exactly that, uh, took, a, took a breather and then went back in. So my advice to buyers, as it was to sellers a couple of months ago to get going, now it's to buyers, get going, uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that the selection is incredible now. The number of listings out there is, is excellent. Uh, mortgage rates are still low. And uh, the, uh, the boogeyman is that uh, the government may be changing the way you have to qualify for a, any mortgage come, uh, come the fall, not just the way they've done with high ratio or insured mortgages where you have 20% down or, or less. Now the 20% or more, you may have to qualify at almost double the rates that are, uh, that are in effect right now. So uh, if I were a buyer and, and I had any inkling at all, I'd be out there. Well, and this is what one of the uh, agents told me that, uh, that works in this area a, a couple of days ago, Lou. Uh, he said just like a lot of people that were holding off, holding off to, to, to list their property, thinking, hey, we're going to really take advantage of this, and now they're kicking themselves because they didn't get in soon enough. He says this, the buyers are in the same situation right now. He says if you don't buy now, he says in three or four months, you're going to be kicking yourself saying, wow, look at that. Now, the prices may not change much, but as you say, it's going to cost more to qualify. Uh, there could be another interest rate hike on top of that. Mortgages are going to be difficult to, to obtain. It's, it could get pretty messy here. And again, it's, it's government interference, but I guess that cuts both ways, doesn't it? 
Yeah, the government has provided solutions uh, for mortgage crisis for which there is no crisis. So <laughs> Governments are good at that. They, they certainly are. Uh, looking at the default rates, uh, they are a fraction of a fraction of 1%. Uh, Genworth, who insures mortgages, has recorded record profits of uh, 60% more than they had last year. So, the, you know, that, that means they're in collecting uh, insurance premiums that the government mandates, and yet they're, they're not having to pay out. So, uh, you know, we have a strong market. Uh, I think people who buy real estate uh, need not be concerned that, uh, you know, they may be uh, putting into an investment like a stock that can go from $10 to $1. So uh, it, it's just, and we're, we're in such a great location in the Hamilton, Burlington and surrounding area. Uh, you know, we're affordable for everybody. We're close to the uh, U.S. markets. Um, you know, nothing but uh, blue sky that I can see. Here's the thing that I find frustrating about this, and I, I don't want to pull you too deeply into the quagmire of politics here, but uh, we've talked about this in the past. We've seen some of these numbers on a monthly basis, Lou, is that governments seem to have this this need to step in here and say, well, we've got a medal here. And they did that in B.C., of course. Uh, they did it here in Ontario. The, you know, the wind government decided, well, we've got a problem with foreign ownership. Well, we don't. Uh, they, as a matter of fact, once the report came out to, to actually put some numbers to that, they realized there is no problem here. Uh, so they're going to do this. They're going to get involved in this one way, shape, or form. But I've talked to you. I've talked to Tim Hudak, of course, from the uh, the Ontario Realtors Association, and others that said, look, at it's still, as we mentioned, a supply problem. That you know, cities are growing, and and there's a pushback in a lot of areas right now, saying, well, you know, we don't want to build on the green belt. We don't want urban sprawl. So we're not going to build any more houses outside of the the main core of the city. And that's not going to change. Uh, no matter who gets in government, that's not going to change anytime soon. So we're still going to have a supply problem here, aren't we? Well, for sure, it's going to take a long time to uh, straighten it out. However, I, I don't uh, know that I agree that it doesn't matter who's in government. Uh, you know, there, there is a plan right now to create density in the downtown areas, as you said. But anybody uh, coming in government could uh, look at the problem later on and say, you know what, we've got to move out just a little bit. Uh, a good friend of mine has 100 acres uh, up on the mountain just outside of the urban boundary. And I mean just. You can, you can spit on it from the urban boundary. And there's no way that uh, opening up that 100 acres is going to be a, you know, an environmental threat. Um, as far as the, uh, the government intervening in, uh, in April is concerned, it, it is really ironic. The market was already slowing down. So you're at the top of the hill, you're starting to slide uh, down the hill, and all of a sudden the government came behind you and gave you a huge push. So uh, if had they done nothing, I'm, I'm convinced that we would be more or less in the same place that we are now. Uh, everybody knows you can't uh, uh, keep uh, putting prices up 20 or 30 percent a year and then have people afford it. We, refresh my memory, because I know that we went through a period like this, uh, I guess it'd be back in the early 1980s, where it seemed that as if housing prices almost doubled in, in about a four or five year period as well. Uh, you know, and and that just seemed to be the market. I, I don't think there was any government interference on that. I think actually they they tried to make home ownership a lot easier at that time, but prices went up nonetheless. It still is, you know, basic economics 101, isn't it? Supply and demand. Well, sure. I'll get to 80, the 80s in just a minute. Sure. But, uh, okay. Uh, in Nova Scotia, they've uh, they've put a first time buyers program out. <clears throat> excuse me, where they will lend you up to five percent of the down payment. 
so you know that that's incredible. That that really would help if we if our government would uh, do something like that here, because those are the folks that are getting squeezed out by tougher mortgage rules and higher prices, and uh, we need to help those for sure. Back in the '80s, between '85 and '90, prices did almost double, but the circumstances were totally different, which led to a a, a bit of a crash, as you might say, in, in 1990, and that was that uh, interest rates were incredibly much higher, like five times what they are. Oh yeah, now. that was the 18 percent mortgage too. Yeah. Correct, and and uh, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, and inflation was was really high. Uh, you know, it, there there was a confluence of uh, circumstances. It wasn't the fact that there was a, a steep uh, rise in the price of housing that that caused that. So um, we got to be careful to compare apples and apples. Uh, as I said um, last week, the uh, there was an article that house prices had gone up. I know uh, since two thousand and six, they'd gone up forty percent, and incomes had stayed flat. And as I said, you know, if you if you're if, if if I gave you that scenario, you'd say, yeah, how the heck are people affording to buy a property? But look at the interest rates in 2007 and six; they were between seven and seven and a half percent. Now they're two and a half. So you've reduced the the cost of the interest by 66 percent. It's no wonder that uh, people can still afford property. Well, and that's why I always get concerned when the government starts sticking their nose in like this, and even to that extent, the Bank of Canada as well. Uh, because they say, well, you know, the interest rates can't stay this low. And, and that may be true to a point, but at some stage that becomes the new normal. And, and if you start jacking them up again just to try to, to have an impact on the economy, uh, it causes all sorts of problems. And we've even seen a government report about that in the last uh, couple of days, Lou, that suggests even the federal government's concerned now that a slowdown in housing is going to mean a slowdown in construction. It's going to mean a slowdown in not just real estate agents, but, but people that build these places. Uh, and people that supply this, et cetera, and it, it could be a, a, a huge problem. And then you know what happens after that? Government says, well, we've got to stick our nose in now and try to stimulate the economy again. So they create the problem, and then they come along like a hero and try to fix it. Yeah, you know, if the government was your spouse, you'd be really mad at them because they keep changing their mind every 10 minutes about what they want to do. And, uh, you know, I, I, as I've said in the past, uh, to pick on my friends at CMHC, they have successfully predicted 10 out of the last two recessions. <laughs> so, uh, but but you know they're they're in a tough spot. Let's give them some credit. Uh, they're they're they have an election coming up provincially next year. They're always they're always afraid of that. Obviously, they're always mindful of that. And uh, I guess you can't blame them. But uh, the balancing act would be you know I mean if you if you told them they're you know they're in there for life. Do do what's right. You might see a slightly different uh, outcome. You know, you mentioned a couple of uh, weeks ago when we had this discussion, when we had this other series of numbers, that uh, what seems to get lost in this discussion a lot of the time, and and this is something you could give us perspective on since you've been in the business a long time, is the seasonal impact on this. I mean, it's summertime, and people tend not to buy a lot of houses in the summer. Um, yeah, it, it, uh, there is a traditional slowdown. Uh, everything is affected by interest rates to some extent, and uh, I mean, I can remember... Uh, selling a couple of properties on Christmas Eve one year because the rates went down and people were, were jumping in. So barring that, you're, you're absolutely right. It's spring and, and fall markets, and that's what we're looking toward right now. Is, uh, we, we, we're not going to get caught up on a couple of months, whether the average price is up or down or a number of sales is up or down. We still know they're, they're, up, they're just down marginally from record levels, so you can't get too excited uh, negatively about that. And uh, um, Yeah, we're, we're, all, we're all sort of waiting to see the fall and, and what's, uh, you know, what we what, what can we report there? But uh, I still say it's not negative at the moment. What are you hearing from, from potential buyers, though, Lou? <laughs> As I say, I'll go back to that conversation I had with an agent a couple of days ago, uh, and he suggested that there's a lot of people out there that were probably ready to buy about four or five weeks ago, and they said, no, 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 I'm going to hold off and see what happens here, and just maybe things are going to get better. 
Uh, and and that they're out there, that they're they're ready, willing, and able, and they may even have pre pre approval mortgages, but they haven't done anything about it yet. Do you get the sense that that maybe after Labor Day they're going to make the plunge? Yeah, absolutely, you're right. Uh, you know, they they're doing the same thing that the sellers were doing a couple of months ago, waiting, 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 and it's like it's trying to like uh, trying to time the market in the stock market. You're going to get burned if you do that. You you do what's right when it feels right for you, and and you go ahead. Um, so yeah, those people who are have got the pre approvals. Uh, if they don't act on them, I think they're being I think they're being foolish, and uh, you know, like I said, trying to time the market and that never works. What do you see happening in in the next little while? Because uh, again, to get this perspective on this, the, you know, the headline here says that well, the numbers are down. You know, the downward trend continues, uh, but you put this in a much broader perspective and say they're down from the the highest they've been in God knows how many years. So it's we're still in an upward trajectory here, aren't we? Trajectory, I should say. Well, uh, upward, I, I think we're at a, a level trajectory, and, and that's only because there's been a lot of listings on the market uh, recently. So, uh, again, I come back to two-and-a-half months inventory. is a very, very healthy market. Just a couple of years ago, uh, we, were, we were much higher than that uh, for months of inventory. And uh, that's, I, I think that's one of the key factors that I look at. If I want to sell my house uh, and you're telling me it's going to you know, take six months to a year, uh, as it does in some northern Ontario communities, for example, then, then I'm going to start getting worried. But when you're telling me it's two and a half months and if I price it right, it, it'll move, uh, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not concerned. Most people are buying and selling in the same market, so they're not, it doesn't really matter. Uh, if prices are up or down, they're, they're just sort of trading. Uh, it, like I said, I'm more concerned about first-time buyers. I want to see them get some help, and, and I hope that people will uh, tell their MPs. And if you have a son that's uh, 30 years old living in your house, maybe that's why. <laughs> well, and that's one of the stats we got from the census the other day. There's an awful lot of people still living in their homes, and maybe it's about time uh, that mom and dad helped them out. And I, I, you just tweaked something in my memory. I believe back in those early 80s uh, when the, the, the housing prices were going up, I think there was a subsidy for first-time home buyers then to help them out with mortgage or down payments anyway. Uh, and so there are tools that governments can do. I haven't heard anybody talking about doing that now. They seem to be wanting to put the brakes on the housing market as opposed to as opposed to actually trying to help people get into it at this stage. But it has, always has been one of the keys to as an economic driver, hasn't it? People say if housing sales are down, that t- tends to indicate that the economy is slowing down. Yeah, the spinoff is something like $60,000 every time a house is sold by people buying furniture and, and that sort of thing. And uh, we have, you're right, we have helped due to the lobbying of the uh, uh, real estate associations. Uh, we have increased the uh, land transfer tax credit. So that's uh, a feather in the cap. Uh, there's some other sort of crazy stuff coming down the line. The government wants to, the, here's what the government wants you to do before you list your house with a realtor. They want you to get a home energy audit done that you're going to have to pay for and then uh, put a score on every MLS listing uh, that it's uh, 958 or whatever the relative numbers are. So, you know, we have a couple of problems with that. Obviously, disadvantages older houses. Uh, Hey, you know, if if somebody wants to know what the energy is like, bring out your hydro bill, bring out your gas bill. We don't need to have people go through a lot of extra expense. And this is before you list your house. Not while it's listed or whatever. So, um, and of course, it never applies to private sales or you know other stuff like that. So uh, we're we're fighting hard for consumers. Uh, we're fighting hard for property rights, 
And, uh, you know, and, and the, the last thing is, uh, we, you and I talk about generalities on the phone all the time, but we really call one of our members, call one of our realtors, and, and you know, they don't bite. They're, they're going to come and help you and tell you exactly what's going on for your particular property. I'm getting the sense uh, as well that, you know, there used to be this push even just a few months ago that they're saying, oh, there's all sorts of people from the GTA that want to move into Hamilton right now. Uh, and I don't blame them. It's a great place to live, of course. But uh, is is that that movement that, that people are talking about that transition? Uh, that hey, can't afford a house in Toronto, so I'm going to look to Hamilton. Is that happening? Well, anecdotally, I'm, I'm hearing that investors are are not as keen to uh, to move in. Um, but um, you know, I've always said if I'm from Toronto and you can show me how I can stay here, where my family is, and I, you know, I, where I know I'm going to stay here. So if prices are softer there, I anticipate that they would try to stay in the area that they're at, and there would be less of those folks coming in. And as you mentioned, most of the time anyway, people stay within the, the market, in which unless there's a job transfer or something. Uh, if you're in Hamilton, you might move to, you know, to Stony Creek or Binbrook or something, but you're still in the same, same area, basically. Exactly. Yeah, we, uh, you know, we're, like I said, we've got such a great area. You, you, you can get dense housing downtown or you can get out in the country by moving a couple of kilometers up the road. So we're in a fabulous market. Uh, they, they don't have that option in Toronto. So if those folks are looking for a bigger lot, yeah, they're, they're going to come down and see us. And we're still seeing them. Don't get me wrong. And, and the advice would be, and it is not to get into fear-mongering, but the advice would be that if you were thinking of buying, you better do it now because uh, if you're waiting for better days, they may not be happening anytime soon. Well, always the, be- the you know the devil you know uh, rather than the devil you don't know uh, would be would be my advice. But you know, there's so many factors you want to take into account: uh, your job situation and uh, what might happen down the road. Once again, uh, you know, you, you sit down with your realtor and uh, and pen all that out. Uh, there's there's uh, the same thing when you're selling. You know, it's not just is it a good time uh, economically, but really what suits your family best. Interesting stat that I saw about this, and and it I I thought would be somewhat incongruous, but it's not. They say that the uh, the home uh, redevelopment, uh, you know, the renovation uh, industry is very much dependent on home sales. And I thought, well, that means no. It means if you're renovating, that probably means you're staying. But apparently, uh, as a guy who's been in the business for some time told me, oftentimes when you buy a new property, eventually you call one of these people and say, by the way, I want to fix this, this, and this. I like the house, but I don't like that part of it. Uh, and they say if home sales slow down, so does their business. Oh, sounds like we lost Lou once again. Well, we did have some phone problems with him. Well, I'll leave that as a rhetorical question. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Robert Mueller, who, of course, is handling the uh, Russia investigation, uh, former FBI chief, uh, is uh, continuing with his work here. Some had speculated a little while ago that perhaps because of some of the pressure and uh, some of the things that Donald Trump had been saying, that maybe the, the investigation was winding down. Apparently, not so. Uh, word out today that uh, that uh, Mr. Mueller has actually impaneled a grand jury. Now, what are the consequences of that? What are they going to do? And what are the political consequences of this? Joining us to talk about this is uh, Harold Waller, professor at McGill University in political science, and uh, always a welcome guest on the program. Professor, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Glad to be here, Bill. Uh, if I could paraphrase uh, one of my great literary uh, giants, uh, it's getting curiouser and curiouser. Uh, with what's going on uh, in in the United States these days. Uh, First of all, your reaction to to the news about what Mueller is doing here with the grand jury. Well, it doesn't surprise me uh, because in the United States, if you're doing a potential criminal investigation, you have to uh, 
formally indict a person. And the way that's done in the U.S., and it's probably the only country in the world that requires this, is that testimony has to be brought by the prosecutor to a grand jury, which is separate, totally separate from the jury in a criminal trial. Grand jury usually consists of 23 people. Um, they do not have to be unanimous. They only vote by majority. Uh, but they have to be convinced that there is enough evidence presented to them by the prosecutor to hand up an indictment against somebody who is then formally accused of a crime. And once you're indicted, then a trial will follow. So they're still at the stage of investigating and trying to um, determine whether, A, there's been a crime committed, and B, whether there is evidence that is enough to charge somebody. And, and the other thing to point out, out about a grand jury is that witnesses are called to the grand jury, but they are not accompanied by counsel, by a lawyer, and uh, therefore um, it's, it can be risky to go in there because you're under oath, and if you say something that proves to be untrue, you could be cited for perjury later on. So it's a very complicated and um, difficult uh, uh, process. I want to distinguish for the sake of our listeners here, too, Harold, uh, I don't want people to confuse this with the Senate investigation that was going on over the last little while, and some witnesses were being called to that. Uh, this is this is a totally separate enterprise, and and for the most part, from what uh, we we were getting from this, it's it's going on behind closed doors, and we don't we know very little about what Robert Mueller's been doing or what he's been up to. Well, that's the way it should be. Uh, criminal investigation is supposed to be done discreetly without public announcement. Grand jury proceedings are secret. Uh, you only find out what is going on in the grand jury if they hand up an indictment, and then of course it is made public. With that in mind, and, and as, I'm glad you, you clarified this, the burden of proof is not to say, hey, we think this individual, these individuals may be guilty. They were basically asking the grand jury, do you think we have enough evidence here that we should proceed with this? Exactly. And there is no defense in a grand jury because uh, the, the, the target of the investigation usually is not present, usually does not testify, and certainly is not represented by a lawyer. So uh, the grand jury only hears the prosecution side of the story and hears testimony for witnesses who are subpoenaed. They are under court order to show up at the grand jury and testify. So that is what the grand jurors hear. The speculation, and, and maybe we're all guilty of doing this at this stage, is we're assuming at this stage that, uh, that Mueller is, is investigating Donald Trump. In other words, that's the focus. That's not necessarily the case, though, is it? It could be anybody that they're, they're focused in the investigation, or it could be a group of people. Well, I don't assume that he's focusing on President Trump. Uh, his mandate is to look at, uh, to investigate possible collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russians. So he, presumably with his team of uh, investigators and lawyers, is looking into that, and they could find, conceivably, that any one of a number of people might have committed a criminal act, but they're not necessarily um, investigating Donald Trump himself. 
Uh, you mentioned that uh, that obviously you, you subpoenaed. We heard the story a couple of days ago that uh, Donald Trump Jr. Uh, is probably going to receive, if he has not already received a subpoena for this. Can you refuse? Can you can you wiggle out of this? Well, subpoena is a court order. Okay. And if you don't respond to the subpoena, you can be held in contempt, which could mean that you're put in in jail for a while. So he's he's going to have to show if he's subpoenaed. He's going to have to do this. Well, if if. He is subpoenaed. Yes, he will have to testify. Now, he can show up and he can invoke his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination and decline to answer any questions. And he might well be advised to do so by counsel. But he has to show up. The subpoena requires his appearance. It doesn't require him to testify if he invokes his Fifth Amendment privilege. Mr. Miller, as uh, you've talked about, Harold, as, as being uh, very uh, closed about what's going on here, as it should be, uh, about the investigation. But the fact that he has impaneled a grand jury, and we found out this morning, of course, that apparently this uh, has been in the works for some time now. It wasn't something they just came up with yesterday. Can we assume that he has something here that he thinks is worth, hey, we have to go to the next step, we have to peel back a few layers? In other words, this doesn't sound like a shot in the dark. Is there is there maybe a body of, of evidence right now that he thinks is is worthy of going to a grand jury to say, hey, we, we've got to get serious about this now? Well, the grand jury is a tool for the prosecutor because the grand jury can issue subpoenas, uh, which the prosecutor himself or herself cannot do. So... And also, then, of course, you can compel the testimony of witnesses, which, which the again, the prosecutor can't do by himself. So it's quite common uh, for prosecutors to work with a grand jury, and one should not jump to conclusions about what this uh, process is going to produce. How much, uh, how much latitude do they have? Uh, we've had experience of this. I mean, I was just starting out in this business when Watergate was going on, so I'm, we, we certainly got a, a pretty good education about uh, American civics and, and, and how that system works. Uh, you remember the Whitewater investigation with Ken Starr into the Clintons, and right. and that evolved from what was supposed to be some, some rather sketchy uh, real estate deals that went on back in Arkansas back right. in the day and and morphed all the way into Monica Lewinsky and a whole bunch of other things. Right. Uh, and a lot of people suggested that Starr turned over every rock with Whitewater, found nothing, and decided to get into the personal lives. Uh, so it sounds to me as if it's almost like a blank check for a, a special investigator. Well, this is the problem with independent councils. They can't, it can't easily be controlled, and they uh, need to justify the, all the money they're spending by coming up with something. Um, but I don't believe that the uh, Whitewater uh, Monica Lewinsky investigation ever produced um, criminal charges against Bill Clinton. He was impeached, and there were charges based on his um, uh, false testimony under oath that were at the core mm-hmm. of the impeachment. But That's I don't right. believe there was a criminal no, there process wasn't. there. No. Especially to do with Whitewater, which was the, the the rationale for the investigation in the first place. Right. Uh, I mean, I'm not aware that there was that any of the investigations about the Clintons ever produced any indictments. So, so, but it, it goes to the power that a special prosecutor can invoke, and and how much work they can do, and. Uh, unless, of course, uh, somebody decides to pull the plug on it, and that's always a situation. As I mentioned, I still remember some of the uh, the, the Watergate things, and, and we remember, of course, the Saturday Night Massacre where the right. special prosecutor got canned 
uh, which threw everybody into a tizzy. But as we found out in hindsight and historically, Harold, that really made a bad situation worse for Nixon, didn't it? Uh, I think it did. But in any event, I mean, Nixon had committed crimes, in my judgment, and they were there was ample evidence that eventually surfaced, largely through these tapes, and therefore um, there was. And as well, many of the people in his White House had committed crimes. So there was ample reason for there to be an a independent counsel investigation. And as you recall, mm-hmm. uh, many of his colleagues were charged and convicted and went to prison. Uh, so there, there were criminal acts that were being investigated there by the special counsel. And it was amply justified. Let me ask you about the political implications of this, because uh, obviously that's got to be a factor. Uh, Trump has uh, very, very low approval ratings. It's, it's hovering in the low 30s right now. But there's still a base there, Harold, that uh, no matter what this guy does, they love him. And there are still some that I've read on, on social media that suggest the fact that he's doing this and the fact that he's thumbing his nose at the establishment empowers him in their eyes. Well, that could well be the case. For example, yesterday evening he held a rally, a campaign rally. I'm not sure what the campaign is, maybe for 2020. Uh, he held a campaign rally in West Virginia. So he is acting as if he's oblivious to this, but obviously it is getting to him. I mean, his presidency is tied up in knots partly because of these investigations, partly because of incompetence in the White House. But the fact of the matter is that he's not making a lot of uh, progress toward uh, his goals. And I think he's, I think the frustration is becoming evident. There's always going to be the art of deflection. I mean, that politicians, if you want to call Trump a politician, are, are, are masters at doing that. Uh, he tweeted today, I'm sure you saw this, says, we won, move on. Uh, does he get this, Harold? Does he understand the gravity of what's going on here, that it's not about who won, it's about what may have happened in, during that whole process? I, I think that uh, his remarks publicly, uh, the recently released leaked transcripts of his phone calls to the Mexican president, Australian prime minister, and a number of other things that have happened over the past six months indicate that, in his view, it's all about himself. Um, and his accomplishments or his lack of accomplishments, I mean, he's constantly worrying about these things. So I I think that um, the constant uh, harassment is getting to him, and he does take it personally, and he appears not to know what to do to deal with these things. Well, I mean, obviously, when you're running Trump Towers, you're you're the king of the hill, and you, right. you know, people jump when you say jump. Uh, it's not happening. Uh, I, the the Republicans never really wanted this guy to be their candidate. When he finally did win the nomination, a few of them, like Ted Cruz and Rubio and others, finally came over and, and embraced him, and Paul Ryan, uh, for that matter, as well. But you're getting the sense that in the Congress that uh, that they they they're getting a little tired of this guy, and you see more and more of them falling off the wayside. Not necessarily uh, making statements about it, but the support is not there, and and nobody seems to be rushing to his assistance aside from the new Gingriches and the uh, the usual folks that you would expect would do so. Well, the problem is that there's going to be a congressional election in about fifteen or sixteen months, and uh, these people are worried. Uh, what do they have to show? 
for uh, already six months of, of his term. What do they have to show for it? And so they're worried that they could lose their seats and that possibly the Republicans could lose control of the House of Representatives. So uh, his shortcomings and his failures in his first six months have them worried. And as we get closer to the midterm election, uh, they're going to distance themselves more and more from him if they think that that will enhance their chances to be reelected. What about how he's running uh, the operation there? Uh, we haven't even touched on the staff changes, uh, probably because it's it's pretty hard to keep up with them these days. But uh, with the John Kelly moving in as chief of staff, of course, Priebus being, uh, well, released for all intents and purposes, uh, Scaramucci and on and on it goes. Does that resonate with the, with the average American voter? Do they care about that stuff? No, I think uh, this is an inside-the-beltway phenomenon. People like me and you, uh, we, we, we follow these things carefully. But to me, it's evidence of... Uh, really um, almost incompetence in managing the presidency. Uh, And I think that's very worrisome. I mean, as you pointed out, running the White House is not like running Trump Tower. And I'm not sure that Donald Trump has been able to make the adjustment. After all, he had no experience in politics. He evidently looks down his nose at politicians, treats them with contempt. He's much more comfortable either with people who have been very successful in business or military people. Uh, These are the most prominent uh, members of his administration, but he's not adept at managing uh, an outfit like the the White House. And I I think he's made some poor choices, um, which were not adequately researched, and this has hampered uh, his performance. And I think the reason he's made poor choices is because of his inexperience. He was woefully unprepared to be president. There's an old axiom in business, Harold, that I know you've heard and, and I, we've talked about many times, and, and successful business people I've talked to have always said, if you hire people that are smarter than you uh, to run a business, and because mm-hmm. and, and, that way you'll thrive. Trump doesn't seem to understand that, or if he even has ever heard of it, he certainly doesn't live by that. Well, he has tried to hire some people who are quite uh, proficient. Um, I, but I, as you pointed out earlier, he wants, he wants to be the top dog as he was in Trump Tower. And it's very hard to uh, recognize that somebody has something that you don't have and you, you are dependent on him or her. I think that's his problem. He, he, he can't um, he, he can't seem to adjust to the reality that there are people with expertise that he needs who may know more about the policy in, in a particular area than he knows, and that therefore he needs to defer to their judgment. Well, we'll see what happens with uh, Mr. Mueller and obviously with the implications of such. Always uh, great to have you on the program and get your perspective on what's been happening down there. Harold, thank you so much. Have a great weekend. My pleasure. You too. Bye-bye. Take care. That's uh, Professor Harold Waller at McGill University, Professor of Political Science uh, with the goings-on uh, with Donald Trump. And it's uh, starting to get a little hot uh, for the, uh, the Trump White House right now with the investigation that's going on with uh, Mueller and others in a grand jury. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.